Coming up next on Way Down in the Hole, we recap episode six and discuss some of the best scenes. Plus, we also break down the reappearance of three of the most significant characters in the series. All that and more on Way Down in the Hole. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Until we settle up with Omar, I think it's best we suspend these meats. In fact, I ain't really one for meats no how. Anybody got a problem from here on out? Bring it to me or sit on that shit. Those of you on the west side who need to re-up, holler at my man Monk. You gonna handle supply over there. On the east side, cheese. One more thing. Price of the brick going up. I'm calling Marlo a straight bitch. Saying it don't take much to shoot down a blind man. Yo, y'all need to get this police on my face before I bank his ass. They need another body, don't they? Here we are at episode six. And when they first introduced this word, Dickensian, I hate this word. It's just so elitist. This is a like coastal it. elite word. This is why people try to own the libs because of that kind of word. Dickensian. Dickensian. It's like, it feels, I mean, we came up with some alternative words like Mary J. Blygian and all those kind of things. But that sounds way better than Dickensian. Uh, but that's the name of this episode titled D- The Dickensian Aspect. You know, playing off something one of the editors at the Baltimore Sun said a few episodes ago when he, uh, when they were interested in a school project and their priorities have kind of shifted now about bringing out, I guess, the the heartwarming or the the personal aspect. I guess that's what it's supposed to mean. You know, since Charles Dickens is a a bit of a, not rags to riches. I'm trying to think of the best way to describe his stories, but... It's a lot about kids, poppers, yeah. and people like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's about the most vulnerable in many respects. So that is what is supposed to be kind of the theme of this particular uh, episode. But, uh, you know, I, I would say one of the, the big takeaways that I had from episode six is that, you know, I, I think you know, right now, much like episode five, that it's starting, you're, you're feeling the closure, like it's that it's coming. And I think a lot of these episodes from here on out will be mostly about, as I said about the last one, moving the ball forward. Like, I didn't think, again, that this was another one. I did not think this episode had a lot of great scenes. I thought it was a good episode, but not a lot of great individual scenes. I think the individual scenes in the last one we're definitely stronger than the ones that were in this one. But, sure. they're, but they're not only... Uh, and, and, you know, this is what happens when you get to the final season of any series is that you have to get to a point where the the details, you have to kind of press them forward so that you can get to the conclusion and get to the end. And we're starting to see not only that, but a lot of full circle moments. Huh. Yeah, true. It's It's becoming less about scenes and more about flow. There are some good scenes. That's a good way to put it. But the story is weaving in and out of itself a little bit more. Uh, not that it normally does, but uh, normally you'd see in the wire big chunks, big heavy weighty scenes tethered together, uh, almost like a novel. Like we talk about it, like it, like it's a novel. A novel has big moments in the book, kind of strung together by moments where really nothing happens. This is kind of a different thing to where a little something is happening all the time. But big things aren't really, big, huge things aren't really happening as much. I, I did appreciate, because sometimes when you're in the final season of a series, that they can rush or not in a not very well thought out way, try to conclude storylines and, and characters. And I will say this, they deserve a lot of credit for how they bring people back in a way that seems totally organic. Like the way that, uh, reappearing in this episode, you have 
Nikki Sabaka, Randy, and Judge Phelan. Mm -hmm. The way that they used them, I thought, was really on the mark because they didn't force some contrived storyline. They came back in a way that it was like, I see that. That makes sense. You know, I mean, obviously, as a judge, Phelan is kind of always in the mix, but his character um, progressively kind of faded out in the wire, and now it's back because they have a new tap. I mean, you have Randy and his storyline, we knew what the end of that would probably look like. And they found a way to weave him in in a way that is not seemingly forced or contrived. See, actually, I think Randy was a surprise. I expected Randy to be eaten alive, but it turned out he was the shark. Well, but he was eaten alive in a different way. I mean, I think that what you said is still true because we expected, I mean, the majority of time that Randy was in this until he made the unfortunate decision to tell, to trust adults is, you know, he's just a sweet kid who's like, you know, selling candy on the black market, you know, and even when he was mixing it up with his boys, there was still an innocence to Randy. You know, he's a kid. He's like doing kid shit and he's living in a bad environment, foster kid. He knows what that's like. But, but the, but the Randy that we saw is gone. Right. So he was eaten alive, very much so. Fair enough. Right? Right. But but yeah, I mean, if if you went from it from a finality standpoint, like, yeah, next time we see Randy might be dead. You know what I'm saying? I can definitely understand that. But I think the, it's still the same message was there. And Nikki Sabaka, who I have a bit of trivia for people who are wondering, like, what? But in the context of which we saw him, it made sense. Like, okay. Um, so from that standpoint, um, from a flow standpoint, a structure standpoint, I appreciate how they have structured this season, even though I, I think some of the powerfulness of, of scenes, it sort of doesn't have as much as those because I don't think it can really afford to. Like, they, they've got a conclusion that they need to get to. Right. And, and that seems to be the focus. Um, to that end, a recap here. So, Marlo, King of Baltimore, has this meeting with the co-op. I wish all my meetings were this efficient. Yes. <laughs> it's efficient and it's to the point that's for damn sure where he's just like hey in case y'all wondering I killed Prop Joe and Hungry Man that was all me and oh by the way price of the brick going up <laughs> so, he didn't say he killed him though well he well, he did kind of say it though didn't he Mm-mm. no he played that very very deftly he said but, he said just to let you know I'm responsible right and he, and he said but what he's but if you listen closely to after that what he says is that he says Omar didn't have the heart to come at me, so he came at those closest to me. So he says, I'm responsible because Omar was coming for me. He couldn't get me, so he killed Prop Joe and Hungry. Oh my God, I read that totally wrong. It's like, I thought he was just telling them, yo, it was me. Oh. They know anyway. But you know right. what? It makes sense. Uh, I should have put that together because Fat Face Rick went Omar and he's like, you didn't kill Prop Joe. I was wondering, like, why did he ask him that? Because didn't Marlo already basically tell him? Right, yeah, he says, did you kill Prop Joe and Hungry? And he's like, I didn't think so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, which again gets to my point is that it is, when you look at Marlo's rise to power, um, it is quite amazing how this has happened. Uh, yeah. But it, but it also, I think it, it, it reiterates the fact that this is a young man's game. And... Mm. And you look around the room, look how much older everybody else is than Marlo. Right. You know, um, or, you know, maybe there's not as big of an age gap as we might think it is, but they just been in the game so much longer. It also tells you how much ruckus there is on the West side because there's a war that we didn't see. Avon and Stringer were going after some brothers for the towers. I can't remember they named the brothers somewhere. They said the, the, the something brothers. And they were fighting with them for the towers. So you can see that there's a lot of turnover happening in the West Side. Meanwhile, some of these East Side guys, I'm not saying they're not, not fighting, fighting over turf. But what I am saying is that, like, Prop Joe was the same age as Burrell was. Basically, they were a year apart. Yeah. So those guys, it seems to be either because of the presence of Prop Joe or some other thing that they have their shit carved up a little bit better and there seems to be less tumult over on that side of things. Mm, no, that's a good observation to make is that, you know, there is, there's a changing of the guard in many respects in, in the drug trade in, in Baltimore, um, you know, starting with Prop Joe and then it's just kind of a, a bit of a trickle-down effect. So uh, he lets the co-op know that he's in charge and, uh, by the way, it's going to be a, a, new, a new pricing that is occurring. Yep, yep. Um, and meanwhile, him and his crew 
they combed the city looking for Omar, who escaped <laughs> uh, after hopping off that balcony. And we learned that he hid in, I don't know if it's a basement or, but he hid within the same apartment building that he hopped out of. Like a janitor's storeroom. Yeah, yeah. And he's in there, um, you know, like Wolverine trying to self-heal mm-hmm. <laughs> his, bust, his busted leg. Uh, to that end, Omar, you know, this is, we're not used to seeing him in this kind of state. We've certainly seen him injured before, but we have not seen him in a state where it almost feels like Omar's a little defeated. Not personally yes. defeated, but you you are wondering at this point, can Omar return to the Omar form that we're used to? Is he up against something that is actually insurmountable? Um, much as you got that feeling with Avon. Right. He's limping around. He's off of his game. And these people are more cunning than the last group. Either they've learned or they just got more skills. But Omar, it seems as if his actual, the actual feeling that we have about Omar right now, he's wearing it on his his physical person. Still dangerous, but not quite as in control as he used to. Even, you know, some of the things that he does in this episode by calling Marlo out, it's not like it feels desperate. No, I think that's actually the perfect word. I think it does actually feel a little desperate. But even though it feels desperate, it is the way to get to Marlowe. It's not a bad strategy. No, and it's it, not. No, he's going around, um, you know, busting up his drug houses, telling everybody, I said he a bitch, and he better come to these streets because that's why I am. And he's too afraid to come come down there um, and them to handle it, uh, you know, like some, gen- some and gangsters. If people, and if people would have been just, if they wouldn't have been fucking so scared of, of Marlowe, somebody actually might have told him. <laughs> I know. Right, right. Omar's plan would have worked if somebody actually had the the balls to tell him what Omar was saying about him. Well, one of the interesting things, I think, is the fact that Omar, after he's robbing his drug houses, I can't even say robbing, but the fact that he's setting his money on fire and also flushing his coke down the toilet. Um, but, it, you know, you know what it reminded me of is uh, when in Batman Begins, or I'm sorry, in, in Dark Knight. Yeah, when Joker, when he took all the syndicates' money and just lit it on fire. Lit it on fire. Yeah, yeah. some men just like to watch the world burn. Right, That's the yeah. way it is, yeah. <laughs> right? All right, so uh, you have that happening at the street level. Lester and McNulty, they continue their fake serial killer uh, efforts, uh, but things are just getting a lot more complicated now. McNulty decides, uh, since he can't get a dead victim because it's too much police attention, too much media attention, he's not going to take a live victim. And so he kidnaps a homeless man and plants him in a homeless shelter. And uh, decides that he's going to call the reporter again, call Scott again, and this time send a picture so that Lester can get more resources and get more taps from Marlo's phone because Lester has figured out that they are using the phones uh, to send pictures. I love how he takes a shot at the Baltimore School District, by the way. He was like, "Mm -mm." (laughs) and he's fool sending pictures. And McNulty is finding as a result that kind of not that easy to be in charge when you're controlling all the resources. I thought this was an interesting Again, uh, that's that is one of the upsides to this particular season. There's a lot of full circle moments like that. You know, the majority of McNulty's career and certainly during The Wire, all he does is bitch at his bosses about what they aren't giving him. Okay, motherfucker, now you got all the resources and people have to come to you. Mm -hmm. Tell me how you like that shit. (laughs) Yeah, he's now a shadow boss. Yes, a shadow boss. He's a guy calling the shots from the shadows. Uh, Bunk decides to do uh, continue to do policing the old fashioned way, Sands making up killers. And he goes back over his old cases that are connected to Marlowe and unearths some very helpful information about Michael and what happened to Bug's father, also Michael's abuser. Um, Carcetti, sensing a political opportunity, has now come alive with the homeless killer situation because there is perhaps a political win that is in it for him that could get him right back or right to, rather not right back, right to the governor's office. So a lot of goings-ons, a lot of little details in this one that you definitely have to pay attention uh, to in terms of the paperwork, the indictment, figuring certain stuff out. So uh, it's it's interesting in that regard. But uh, for now, we will take a deep dive into someone. I have to say, man, I am, and I I, I can't wait to hear your reaction, I am truly surprised that Sidnor went rogue that he is deciding to join Lester in this quest to get Marlo. To a degree, I should say, because he doesn't know about the fake serial killer shit. But 
I am I was generally surprised at, at this development. Yeah, Sidner is hard to kind of figure out because they kind of use them the way we use guys on the edge of our 4-4 defense <laughs> in high school, right? Like, we had uh, a DN scheme where the DN was just outside contain. Like, you wouldn't even rush. Like, you would just, it was just outside contain, meaning if they blocked in, it was boring. And like you would, and, and and if you try, and if one time you were out of position, they put somebody else there. It was a position that like we didn't even care about. We never had dominators there. We had our guy dominators in the inside. You, it was feed every everybody on the edges had to feed everything inside inside to the middle linebackers and stuff like that because that's where we put our best athletes. And that's how they've been using Sidner. They always use Sidner to to take up to do important jobs, but boring jobs. Yeah. Jobs to where you might see somebody go, hey, man, I want to do more than this. It's not that nobody can, it's not that people, that you don't need somebody to do it. It's just that that guy is never going to win the medal. So being that that's the case, that it doesn't seem like there's ever any big time win it for him. It, it was interesting that he decided to take such a risk. I think it was a personal decision more than it was a professional one. Obviously, he wants to get Marlowe and all of those guys. But I think a guy like Sidner, um, who's been back and forth, really has a real uh, affinity for Lester and for the rest of the guys and just kind of what it is that they're missing. He talks about it a little bit earlier on in the season, how he actually likes being out there on the roofs and surveilling people. And he doesn't like... The, uh, the the Clay Davis case as much. So maybe he's trying to find something that he likes doing. And if that means getting him off of Clay Davis and back on to Marlowe, then he'll go along with it. But to be honest with you, in terms of just like the working man, Sidner is the working man's police officer of the wire for sure. So there is a theory that many wire fans have discussed over the years that People look at season five trying to see who's becoming who that was already established. Um, you know, like, uh, and, and this will, we'll get to discuss this later, but the prevailing theory was that Michael was becoming Omar and, you know, and, and different characters were becoming somebody else who was established. So the theory is that Sidner is becoming Lester. Interesting. I'm not sure if I, if I totally buy that because, uh, because of what you just said is that, you know, the one thing that makes Lester a great detective is that he has a particular thirst for the details, for the boring te- details. Like, he feels like that's where cases are made. Right. As they say, the devil is in the details. It's in the boring stuff. It's not... He likes that. Yeah, he likes that. He likes the meticulous nature of it, which is why he is somebody who, you know, those little crafts that he does that he sells, that... Uh, that appeals to his meticulous nature. I don't think Sidner is the same way. I don't think he likes the meticulousness of it. However, and this may sound a little, you know, off the wall, I think if I had to, you know, make a guess at who Sidner is becoming, I don't think he would be quite as dysfunctional, but just in terms of attitude, I think it's more McNulty. Why would you say that? Because he doesn't even have, it doesn't seem like he has the same personality traits that McNulty has. But we're starting to see some things is that Sidner, as they have progressed in this, like he, remember after, I think, uh, I think after they brought down the Barksdales and it was Sidner who was talking about like what a great case it was and the amazing work. And he was riding a high from that. This Marlowe thing really bothers him, you know, and he was frustrated in this season, the fact that they busted up major crimes and they put him on this Clay Davis stuff, which he did not really want to do. And what's driving him to make this decision that I didn't expect him to make is the fact that he feels as if all the legal avenues have been exhausted and it's time for him to take things to another level, which is much more McNulty-esque than it is Lester, you know, like Lester, of course, you know, he's on this this train, too, about like saying, screw it. We just going to yeah. invent this serial killer. Of course, but, yeah. But because I've, I've seen more of the frustration in Sidner than we normally see, because he's usually a pretty cool customer. I, I feel like he is. If, but if you ask me who was he more like between the two, I would say probably McNulty. 
I mean, he's also young and married, so God, who knows where that might wind up. Yeah. He, he might be swigging Jameson by the time, and swigging Jameson and cheating on his wife by the time all of this is over with. But that feels like more of a match to me than than the Lester part of it. Um, you know, and plus, it's, it's it's been interesting over the course of The Wire to see Sidner, uh, to see how much he's grown. I mean, this was somebody at one point that Bubs had to school about how to look like a real addict. <laughs> and now here he is as he's established himself as kind of a, a major component in this unit. And uh, he's learned a, he's learned a lot, which is why I said, like, I, I could definitely see him kind of morphing into that. Either way, he's next man up or the next generation of of great detectives uh, in this department. All true. He's he's interesting as a character in that he is in every season of the show. Right. Or most every season. Does he drop out? I think season? you. I, I feel like you might be right about that. I'll, I'll, right. I'll do, yeah. Uh, no. You know what? No, that's not true. He's not in season two. He's not in season two. He's okay, not so in we don't two. we don't see Sidner in season two because yep, we barely see major season. we don't, we barely see major crimes in season two until right. uh, a ways into it. Um, I guess he's in the series long enough to be one of the watershed members of the major crimes unit, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, how, who do you want? Give me Sidner. Give me these guys. Give me, but never enough to get a storyline of his own. Yeah. Like, Sidner, Sidner doesn't have, like, an arc. Sidner doesn't have uh, uh, a storyline of his own. Like, Sidner never gets, like, um, he never gets uh, anything to do away. We don't learn anything more about Sidner's life. Almost everyone else in Major Crimes has been around that long. We do. Uh, we learn more about, obviously, Herc, Carve, Kima, obviously McNulty and all of those guys, but... For some reason, Sidner, we never, they they only, it's a, the character's kind of a nibbler, but they're important bites, right? He's always in the middle of it and he's got some great moments. But in this season, particularly, I think it was important because just the fact that he trusted Lester and those guys so much that he was going to go along with this, it kind of, he almost represents the working man in a little bit. At some point, you don't know the machinations of everybody that's, go- of everything that's going on ahead of you. You don't know how things are going. Someone tells you something and they say, hey, we're going to do this. We have to do it. Make a decision and then you have to make one. But overall, it's an interesting character because it's like a character that almost doesn't get over the hump. But a good dude, from what you, everything you know about Sidner, Sidner's solid. Even when he was talking to Hurt that time, and he goes, uh, listen, this bullshit has gone on long enough. Like, go in there, eat it, eat the charge, do the deal, and Hurt ends up doing that. And that's not what ended up getting Hurt done, but it was it definitely didn't help. So he's kind of like a cop's cop. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, interesting, though, when we even decide to do a deep dive on him, it's, it's sometimes hard to deep dive him because they almost want his character to kind of be a shallow, a shallow pool. Yeah, no, I, I think it was by design, but it was interesting because David Simon said uh, of all the characters, uh, you know, in the wire that Sidner was one that, as he put it, remains morally clean. That doesn't, it, what he wanted to make a distinction because he, he wasn't saying that he always did, he was perfect. And did everything right, but even though he has making he's making this choice to kind of illegally engage in these wiretaps with Marlo, that is more of a a procedural decision. That's not yeah. a amor- it's not an amoral one. So he no, was making the, this distinction, like he he always kind of does the right thing, even if you know technically, obviously in this case, it's considered wrong because it's it's violating some some important rights that people have in terms of wire, but he feels like the, it's the right thing to do because Marlo has been such, you know, a terror um, on these streets. By the way, to your McNulty point, mm-hmm. I, it's just something, I just remembered something. There is going to be something that happens in the last episode of yeah, this season. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of too. Yep. Yeah, that leads you to believe that. That leads you to believe that Sidner um, you know, come that that just jumped into my mind. Uh, that Sidner it does become McNulty because 
once again, he's a guy that that that's been doing what he's told. It's going to see that that really doesn't get you anywhere in the department, uh, as far as making cases. And I, and the 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 Lester McNulty edict of the casework is more important than making rank. Is going to rub off on Sidner more than it, it does. Oh, he, did with he any buys of the other that. Ones. He buys yeah. that a hundred percent, and that's the influence of both Lester and McNulty. Is that they're about making cases. They're about being police. Uh, Sidner does not, you know, just from a from an optic standpoint, being the fact that you know he's clean cut, he's respected. He could very easily go to Daniel's route, like he could do that in a minute, but he has chosen to go the other route and to make his career about making career cases, about cases that he feels like really make an impact on a city. And that is the direct influence of working with those two. And so maybe it's just a thing where he has a little bit of of tools and things from the both of them, where he, you know, where Lester is teaching him about the meticulous nature of being a detective and how that pays such huge dividends. And McNulty is also teaching him at the same time, sometimes you got to say fuck the system and do what you got to do to get this done. And so he's kind of learning a little bit of both, but it's just, as I said, that I feel like he veered toward there. You know, the other interesting thing too about, you know, Sidner is that he, you know, he was one of the the few characters that was was a little bit more one note I mean, I don't know if Sidner, Sidner shows some naivety in some cases, but he doesn't really show any vulnerability necessarily. It's that, okay, you know that he's young, he's up and coming, bit of a hot shot in some regards. Um, and he's kind of new to a lot of things. But, you know, whereas with Prez, Prez was in kind of a similar situation where young, new, all these things. But you saw, obviously, very clearly what what Prez's deficiencies and vulnerabilities were. And with Sidner, they've kind of, built him differently. Like, Sidnor is the cop you imagine in some rogue buddy comedy uh, about police. Like, you imagine him to be that kind of cop as opposed to one um, that is, you know, kind of self-destructive as as some of the cops in this series tend to be. Interesting that you said that David Simon said that Sidnor is the character that remains morally clean. That's interesting to me because I start to wonder if that's the reason why we don't know too much else about his his other life. Probably in so. order to in order to have a character remain morally clean in the wire, we have to know the least amount about them possible. You know what I right. mean? Right. Because the more because, moment we start digging into their life, we're like, man, this dude fucked up. This, this <laughs> fucked up like the rest of them. Yeah. But I, I, I fuck with Sid though, man. Yeah, I do too. Um, and definitely, if I mean, by far, when it comes to, you know, best. Uh, sneakers or gym shoes on the show, Sidner. Now, he got Jays on in basically every scene when he's not he in the suit. He does his thing. He does his thing. So, um, shout out to the young Jack, the young buck Sidner. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com.
Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. All right. Um, now let's talk about some of the best scenes and moments from this episode. Uh, what did you have, Van? Okay. Uh, Nikki Sabaka is back. Love that little episode. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene where they are looking for Omar. And yes. <laughs> uh, Snoop goes to the hospital, but more specifically when Monk talks to the lady and asks her, yo, uh, how is the lady? Is she okay? Yeah, man, she good. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I have I have something to say about that under We Love This Show, but about that scene. I was like, okay, all right. Um, but yeah, in general, like them being, them combing the streets, looking for Omar, you know, Snoop with a little new notepad going to these hospitals and like trying to figure out where he is. Um, yeah. they, they're frustrated and, yeah. you know, you notice who's probably the most frustrated is, is, is Chris, is right. Partlow. Yeah. 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 I have that down. Like yeah. there's a lot of pouting in this episode. It's a very pouty episode. I have mm. that written down too. Chris being mad over Omar, throwing his knife into the ground. It's funny mm-hmm. to me. I like that little scene. Marlo with the co-op, uh, <laughs> price of the brick going up. I'm going to just start saying that in, con- in contract negotiations. Van, what do we do? Hey, man, just let y'all know. Hey, man, price of the brick going up. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I also noticed about that scene? It's a, it's a little thing. What's they up? Actually, they actually had fresh cold cuts in the back. Like, they were really, like, trying to be a real a real meeting place. Who goes to get the cold cuts for the co-op meeting? <laughs> Are you say, uh, they in uh, a hotel, Van. <laughs> I know. So the, the hotel brings the cold cuts? Is that how that works? Yeah, like, when you go and you have conference meetings off sites or whatever they usually give you an option about whether or not you want some refreshments for your meeting and they're typically cold cold cuts water you know a a, uh, soda or you know offering so look this is a real body to be respected man they got cold cuts so real quick sidebar real quick sidebar this makes sense now and I'll tell you why so I think it was last year the year before Kalik and I went to the Parker Palm Springs or something like that, which, by the way, the Parker Palm Springs, to me, is the greatest hotel in the world. I that, dig it. The park, have you ever been there? The Parker I and Palm Springs? I have not. I dig it. It's fantastic. Okay. The Parker and Palm Springs or the Bel Air Hotel here uh, in Bel Air, you can't beat them. You can't. You can't. They can't be beat. I don't care what you guys say. They're beautiful, the Parker. So I'm walking by the Parker, all right? I'm, I'm walk, not walking not walking by, but inside of the park is like this big sort of amazing little campus area, right? It's like the hotel is like a, its own little ecosystem. Like you can literally go there for a weekend and never leave property and like walk around. They got hammocks out there. I'm sure it's fucked up now. They got two pools. They got hammocks out there. They got little hidden lemonade stands. They got clay tennis courts. They got where you can play the big chess thing. And then they got like little hidden hidden restaurants and like hidden wine tasting joints and stuff like that. It's just a really amazing place. Really amazing place. But I was walking around there one night and it's like a thousand degrees in Palm Springs or whatever. And I see like where they were having like a, uh, like some sort of presentation in like a presentation room, like a co-op meeting or something like that. I see where they were having it. And I, I go in there and I look and the chairs are pulled out. It's like the people left. Right, the people had gone, but what I noticed was that a lot of the refreshments were still there. <laughs> I see where this is going, <laughs> and so it's like a little room that's right there, but it's it's outside. It's like the reception room where they have they have amazing weddings there and stuff like that. And I look and I'm like, oh shit! She's like, what are you looking at? I'm like, yo man, you see all them cookies and shit right over there? They got like a gang of shit. And she and, and she's like, yeah, but like. It looks like they're having some sort of meeting. I'm like, I think they're gone. Like, I really do. I think that they're gone. I think I don't think anybody's coming back in there. I don't see anybody in there. I don't hear anybody even talking about anything. I think I think the people are gone. Right? You can still see where there was a projector in there, and there was something, blah blah blah. And you, there's like handouts at like the table. It's like I think they're out of here. She goes, whatever, come on. And so we walk, we we leave. We're walking around the grounds, just talking or whatever. And I tell her. I said, see, if we roll back there, if we roll back there and that shit is still out and nobody's in there, 
I'm going in that motherfucker. I, I'm letting you know right now. I'm going in there. I'm going in there to have some of these because it's going to go to waste. Right. You, you know, might as you, well. Yeah. She's going in. She's like, the door is locked anyway. I'm like, whatever. By the way, you're a hater. <laughs> so we walked away. We came back. and I was like, yo, I'm going in there. It's like, it's going to be locked. I look at it and I grab the thing. Door is open. I consider that a, that's a blessing. Door is open. God and wanted you to have that. God wanted me to have the best cookies off the chain. Though, like the best cookies you could eat. It's like they were saving the good cookies for whatever this meeting was. So I was conservative. Took a couple cookies, got a can of Coke. All right? Left. Later on that night, true story, we get back to the room. We, we were, we're, we're getting takeout and we asked them if they have cookies. The same cookies as we figured the hotel that we actually don't have any more cookies and we know the bacon. I was like, you know what? I wonder. Tell me you didn't. If they've actually gone back and cleared <laughs> the room Tell me you out. didn't do this. And, and she was like, fuck it. Walked back over there. Guess what? Still about six cookies. Guess what we did? Took, Took them all. all. Now you got to take them all. Now you got to take all the cookies. I don't know whose shift got skipped or who called in sick, but they did not get that room clear. So we went back and we got the cookies. We got some drinks. And it was amazing. I sat, I laid out in the hammock in, in my in my room uh, because you had a little outside area. You got a little hammock out there. I laid out in the hammock and I ate cookies and it was bomb. So what I'm saying is that I should have known that they provide the refreshments in the hotel or some shit like that because I've taken part in that. That happened. That's a real story. Cookie thief. I am just horribly impressed right now. That. That was good. I mean, I was I was gonna be a little disappointed. I started off being disappointed because I was like, if he didn't come back for them cookies and the refreshment, I would have judged you for that. And by the way, even the next day, even the next day, because we were cookie addicts, even the next day, even the next day, when we were trying to get some cookies, we ordered some cookies and they brought them to us. And I was like, hey, no, no, these ain't the same cookies. Well, you know why they're not the same though? Because why? they're not the same because you have to take into context how you acquired the cookies. I always say this about parties that you sneak into. The party you sneak into is way better than the one that you're on the list for or you pay to get in because you respect the journey. See, mm. it was about the journey of the cookies. That's what made the difference. It's like, that's what made them taste even better. That's what made the chocolate chips chocolatier because you had to, you had to strategize to get these cookies. They yeah. were just a gift you weren't expecting, you know? It's true. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, along those same lines, I've been in hotels before where they've had, um, you know, some kind of work gathering or there's some kind of reception. I may or may not have gone up to the open bar and gotten a drink and acted like I was a part of it. Word up. Uh, right? Word like, up. You don't there. know. Yes. And, there, and nobody said anything. And I just, like, went up. I just, you know, blended in. And you know what? That drink was even more refreshing and tastier. That vodka hit that much harder. Because it was free. And what yeah. went into me getting it? Right. Yeah, it's yeah. happened before. And by the way, people have done that at work parties I've been to. And I've looked at them and I've been like, you don't work here. <laughs> this happened at a TMZ party. We had the party over there. I was like, you don't work here. And they were like, uh, what, was this a work thing? I was like, nah, you do you. That's right. T take part. You do you. The food's in the back. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, thanks, man. Nah, thank you, because I fuck with you. And then, that's you know, right. and that's that. Nah, I get it. I, you got to fuck, fuck with anybody who does that. Don't block their blessing. Don't, See? don't, why? Why and would you, I? Right. And then, you know what, man? It's because you did that. That's why you was blessed with them cookies. That's why I was right blessed there. with them cookies, goddammit. All right. Uh, so, beyond the, the co-op um, meeting, a scene, uh, what else? Any other uh, best scenes and moments that you had? Best scene to me is Bunk and Randy. If you know something about that boy Lex getting shot, now is your last chance to speak to that. You gave a statement last year. Why don't you promise to get me out of here? That's what y'all do, ain't it? Lie to dumbass niggas. Yep. That's probably the one. It's probably the one. Best scene to me is Bunk and Randy because one guy's life has fundamentally changed. And another guy is doing the same thing. Now, that's not to say Bunk is doing a bad thing, but Bunk is Bunk. Bunk has transitioned into his final form. 
you know, this is who Bunk is going to be until, you know, Bunk finishes his career with the police department. As far as Randy is concerned, uh, Randy is in the middle of a just monumental change. But one thing that he is not is the same kid that he was that got him into the predicament that he is in now. He'll never be that kid again. And it wouldn't matter if he had to save the president's life. He's not going to talk to Bunk about it. You know what I mean? So uh, just seeing that change and, and checking back in with that character and then also seeing that, you know, at the end of that scene, he shoves a kid for no reason, that he has now become predator. Guy's little muscles popping out of his wife beater. He's not a victim anymore. Now he is more likely to victimize somebody. So seeing that 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 scene to me, even though it's basically like a almost where is where are they now type of scene in terms of the season, it's still to me the best scene of this uh, this episode by far. The thing is though, it's not just a you know sort of a, a gratuitous let's just see what happened to him thing. Is that I think what they want to drive home in that scene is consequences. The consequences, all this, you know, the incompetence of her, everything that happened led this kid to here, to where his life is changed forever. The makeup of who he is, it's been completely altered. Uh, as I said earlier, like, this is no longer sweet little Randy just trying to make a buck. Like, mm-hmm. he's gone. That kid is gone. There's right. a cruelty to Randy now based off the way that he pushed that kid down on the right. stairs. And, and and people remember his first day when he was in the home, he got his ass beat. He got jumped, right? And now he's the kid jumping other people that come up in there. Yep. And so it just sort of drives home the cost of this system and what it does to people. So I, I'm with you. I, I think that was probably the most powerful scene in, in this episode. So yeah, that was, that was something else. Anything else you got? No, I think I'm done. So... Uh, I had all those things that you noted. Also had the press conference. Carcetti, he turned into oh, Reverend yeah. Carcetti. Yeah, and yeah, he yeah. Starts, Get up there doing his thing. Yeah, started lecturing the media about how they only show up for the bad news and not when, and now that, you know, Baltimore is being ravaged, they think, by a, home, you know, a, a homeless or a serial killer that's targeting the homeless, you know, suddenly all the news cameras and everything else uh, want to show up. And so, and, and that's the thing that could be, frustrating about Carcetti is that when he makes up his mind to actually be a public servant, he's actually pretty good, you know? And so, but it's just too often in his decisions and, and how he moves. It's about, he, if you always have your eye on the next job, how can you possibly save the people, right? right? He started as a, you know, a council member, but he had his job, eye on the mayor. So it was only so much he was going to do there. Got, you know, and so it's like now that he's in this role to be a role of being the mayor, now his eyes on being the governor. And mm-hmm. you know he's the type of dude, once he gets the governor, he's going to be thinking about running for president. Right. So like every stop, he has his eye on the next milestone for himself personally. And it's kind of like, fuck all the citizens that get impacted in between those steps by his either ability to do something um, that's not right or inability to do something that he should. So um, it's a good moment for him, but it just reminds you of like what his shortcomings actually are. The one thing I thought was interesting about that scene with Nikki Sabaka when he yelled fuck you to the developer is how the developer, he says, oh, when uh, Karketi said, who's that? He's like, nobody. And just right there, Mm. you know, I mean, this is somebody whose entire life was destroyed by, um, to some degree, what was happening at the ports, the less of the reliance on industrial help and on, on hard labor. And his obvious choice to get involved with with a high level drug dealing. So life is totally destroyed. But to a developer who all he wanted was the real estate, he didn't give a shit about this dude. He's just like, oh, that's just one of those poor people that we just had to move out of the way. In order for us to get to the money. In order for us to get get to the money. It reminded me, and this is a a theme in season five. You know, there's a a whole season built around what happened to Nikki Sabaka. In his world, what happened to him was so much bigger than it was. There's so much bigger than anything. Notice how they dealt with the deaths of Hungry Man and Prop Joe, the media, the paper. When Alma tells Gus, oh, yeah, I got these two homicides. One, I forgot what he said. I think his real name is like Nathaniel or something like that. And he's like, oh, yeah, they're they're a brief in the paper. They're a mention, despite Mm -hmm. being these... 
you know, in their world being considerable people to reckon with. And Nikki Sabak is the same way, is that, you know, he was once working with the feds and um, and all that. And he is just the dude, some anonymous dude, some developer doesn't give a fuck about. So it just puts things kind of in in purpose. Uh, did in, you feel when you saw Nikki, did you feel how did that scene? Like, what did that scene do for you? Like, was there any like when you saw Nikki, were you, were you sad? It, it, it came and went with me with not very much emotion considering yeah. what everything that he's been through. It's interesting, right? Yeah, no, it is. I mean, Nikki was always, always very complicated because he was somebody, I, that was my consistent complaint in season two, is that he is somebody who thinks he's better than a lot of people that he's really mm-hmm. not, you right. know? Especially, I mean, he's also kind of a lightweight racist. Um, <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, but, you know, you're quick to to dehumanize and call the, the, um, the drug dealers on the corner um, uh, that you're quick to call them, you know, like animals or whatever, but you're doing the same thing. Doing the exact same shit they're doing. The doing the exact same, same thing, but you think you're better than them. So sort of in a way, it was unexpected. I had another reaction, but I'm going to save that because that's actually in our our, our trivia um, for today's episode. But yeah, those are some of the scenes that I pointed out as being uh, noteworthy. Um, uh, to you in this uh, episode, what aged the best? We'll move on to that. Let's see. What aged the best? I have systemic dysfunction. Obviously, always ages the best. And that mm-hmm. comes from the uh, the scene where, they're, where they realize that the lab has fucked up all of the... Uh, which is also a, a, another fantastic scene uh, where Kima it's, and Blunt go and they especially realize... Especially why it's fucked up. Right. That, <laughs> over, that, over at all. <laughs> at all. The lab has fucked up the specimens from the 22 murders and stuff like that. So just that type of dysfunction, that type of mismanagement of detail leading to such like a huge, huge deal. Uh, always ages good. Um, and what's age best is pictures on phones. They have come such a long way than what they have uh, during this time. Because uh, they were struggling in this era, but pictures yeah, you're on right. phones with those, have come... with those uh, with the flip phones. Oh yeah. man, it was bad. Right. Yeah, in Strugglesville. Yeah. But what about you? Yeah, they they all look like kind of old VHS tapes. The quality. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's just like you can't tell the difference between that and like you know a fancy you know four you know like HD camera or, or something shot in 4K. So uh, they definitely had a, a good come up. To me, what aged the best in this was fake modesty. Um, cause Scott Templeton, who's like, what me have to be on TV? What? I don't like being the center of it. Okay. Cut to him sitting down with Nancy Grace. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in media, you see a lot of that is that, uh, I'm always amused by people who don't try, who act like they don't like the attention and they really do like the attention. So he's enjoying all of this and feeding right into it. Loves being, loves the fact that now he's the focal point in this you know, imaginary serial kill ruse that uh, McNulty is feeding him because, you know, he was so ambitious and always somebody uh, who wanted to be the center of the story and wanted to be on the big story, but more importantly for him, I think, to be the center of it. And it's kind of interesting what happens to Scott in this episode because for all his lies, he finally actually stumbles upon a real story. Um, When he sits down with the veteran who tells him, you know, about some of the things that have happened to him. Um, and I guess I should say that also aged well, too, unfortunately, is uh, people who are in the service suffering from PTSD at that time. Right. It was, yes, it was kind of like not well known, but known, but not well known, I don't think, by the wider public that it was. And unfortunately, you know, now we do have a, a, a much a, a much clearer definition about what that does. And not just for people who have been to war, but with people who have experienced violence and trauma in this country, in their own neighborhoods and own environments. So, but the fake modesty act, I was like, okay, Scott, I see what you're doing here. So to me, that that unfortunately ages the best because a lot of people still do that. Uh, did you have anything down for something that aged the worst? Um, uh, When they go to, tackles, to talk to Michael's mom, mm-hmm. she has one of those big ass beers. Oh, what, like, not a 40, though, right? Not a 40. She had a big-ass beer of Steel Reserve. Oh, my you God. Know? Have you ever had Steel Reserve? I have not. Is Steel Reserve good? Hell no, that's not good. Like, that's some right. shit you could put in your gas tank, all right? Right. She had a big-ass beer. I haven't seen, maybe because I haven't been to the hood uh, back in Baton Rouge in a while, 
But I haven't seen somebody drink one of them big-ass beers. Like, I see people drink beers all the time out here in L.A. But see them big motherfucking beers, them 24-ounce yeah. big, huge beers? I haven't seen somebody drink one of them big-ass beers in a long time. Well, you know, the point of them uh, is, like, it doesn't take a lot. And, you know, you got, like, three or four high-potent beers all in one. <laughs> right. <laughs> all in one. Did y'all, in, in college, did y'all drink 40s, man? I didn't drink 40s, not, not really in, in college, you yeah. know. I, I didn't really, I didn't I didn't have a college full of like a ton of, I didn't drink so, so much. I drank when everybody was around, but I didn't drink so, so much. But it was it was more cheap shit to get you really fucked up. Yeah. Not not as much beer, but like taka vodka. Or I did go through a Smirnoff ice phase. Oh, God. Yeah, right. Zima was, was, the one, was the thing when I was in college. Like everybody was on Zima. Zima's terrible. Like, I'm just like, Zima and, uh, you know, occasionally people would drink 40s. I mean, not just just to see what it tasted like. I did a St. Eyes once, and I was like, how are people drinking these all the time? This is shitty beer. Uh, I didn't have anything that, that aged the worst, so we can move on to, we love this show, but. So I got two beefs in this episode. One, Monk posing as a detective looking for Omar. I don't buy he's that smart. Sorry, I you just don't. You don't like it. I just don't think he's that smart. I just don't think he would think of that. But like, you know what? I'm going to go home, get um, one of the two suits I probably own, or I'm going to just get a $99 joint that's available at uh, some, uh, you know, shopping plaza near me, and I'm going to go pose for a detective. I don't buy that Monk is that smart. Am I underestimating Monk? Maybe I am. I just don't buy it. I don't think that as they calm the city, they would come up like, you know what, let's pose for a detective and ask people, have they seen this person? I'm like, yeah, y'all street smart. I don't want to take that away from you, but you know, that's a little bit upper level thinking. I'm like, I don't know about that. I'm I don't think it. I got it in. My second beef is I was wondering, you know, McNulty has, and, and Lester, they, they've, you know, they're, they're the engineers of this fake homeless murder type of thing. Is that something that really would get national attention. I don't know. I don't know if it would because, I mean, you know, because I guess I should have taught this as something that aged the best is that certainly the lack of consideration or concern for the homeless population definitely uh, has aged the best. Definitely has aged the best, right? So mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a very real issue. But I don't know if this is something that would have gotten CNN to wonder what was happening in Baltimore. I don't know. Mm. I, I have questions. Not guys, sure. guys, killing and fucking homeless people. But they didn't really say. I mean, they they said like sexual in nature, but like not really. Maybe I guess you know. Maybe it would if if the the killer, like the live victim thing, might have worked. Like the, mm. I, I can see that being like a big thing. But I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how much national media really would have cared about this. I'm not sure. Okay. So just just a thought. Just a, just okay. just a thought that I had. All right. Now let's talk about some file this away for later moments. What'd you have? Uh, one huge one is Omar calling Marlo out. Yes. Going at his Marlo reputation. A straight bitch. I'm calling Marlo a straight bitch. Also, Omar, Omar's attack scene is a good scene in this episode as well. Mm. Um, uh, where he goes up against Fat Face Rick and he, he's doing this whole thing, Omar in, Omar out. Uh, but Omar calling Mar- Marlo out is a good file this away for later moment. And really, that was the only one that I kind of had in this episode. I'm sure there are some more, some that we've that that we have uh, sort of talked about. That was the one that I kind of had. What about you? So the one that's related to that, um, especially now that you you thankfully corrected me because I, I thought that Omar was not Omar. I thought that Marlo was admitting that he had done what he did to prop Cho. But now that you said what you said, go back and look at that scene again and look at Slim Charles's reaction to Omar or to Marlo. Excuse me, saying that he brought this on, you know, because, you know, Omar went after people close to him. Uh-huh. Because at that point, I forgot that Slim Charles has already had a run-in with Omar. Yes, he has. He has had it. So he knows about, he's like, huh, he let me go. Right. Why would he kill Prop Joe? Why would but he kill Prop Joe? And he wouldn't right. kill me. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. It's very because true. Because he's, he's looking at him as he's saying it like, mm-hmm. I don't believe this shit. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Because he's like, if Omar was really trying to kill everybody you touch, how am I still alive? How am I still alive? Because, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Slim knows that that's not true. And Slim they don't knows. know that. 
they don't know that Slim has already run into Omar. No, or else they, they probably, Or else they probably wouldn't have played it that way. Correct. Um, and so they don't know that. And uh, because he has that question in his mind, huge foul this away for Litter um, going down the road. Um, also, uh, Bunk figuring out from uh, Michael's mom that Michael is in Marlo's crew. Mm-hmm. And uh, him... That's big. Yeah, that, that's pretty big. Uh, that's a big... You know, so Bunk deciding to go back and look at the the old cases, really, it was unsuccessful with Randy, but it really paid off and with him going back to look to see what happened uh, to Bug's father when he was killed. Huge father's away for later. Um, also, the discovery that Prop Joe has sealed indictments in his possessions, um, which uh, indicates there is a leak in the court <laughs> somewhere. Somebody's got it. So those are the ones that I spotted. Uh, now onto some trivia. So, we talked about Nikki Sabaka and his reemergence in this episode, which got me. The first thing I thought after seeing him was, "Hold up, wasn't he a witness protection? <laughs> How is he just out on the street?" Yeah, well, remember he walked away from it, right? So that's why I was going to bring that back up and say, um, "Wait, for those who forgot, he actually left witness protection and decided, you know what? I don't want to leave my friends, my family, uh, which apparently is is a thing." You know, just looking at some some articles I did to prepare for this. Yes, I did look on some on witness protection. That happens more often than you think, is that a lot of people choose to do that because they don't want to leave behind their old life. Uh, other trivia I had is, do you know Sidner's first name? Detective. <laughs> Sidner's first name is Leander. Does he look like a Leander to you? Nah, that's an interesting name. I was like, I wonder Leander. why Leander. Leander. I've never known a Leander before, though. That's such a specific name, too. You know, like, maybe if you'd have told me his name is Rick Sidnor, I'd have been like, all right, I get that. Right. But, like, Leander? That's got to be somebody that Simon knew. That's what I was thinking, too. But that yeah. is Sidnor's first name, in case you wondered. All right. Finally, Van, we have reached the moment of truth. Who did you think won this episode? Omar. Mm, you did. Even with busted up leg and all. He in them streets, Busted up leg and all. He in them streets. I gave it to Omar based off sheer effort. Omar is in them streets. The effort uh, is remarkable. The effort is remarkable. You know, he's taking people out. He's tracking it down. He's like a broke-legged Batman right now trying to figure out how to put everything together. I gave it to Omar. Yeah, so much about what he's going through. I think I mentioned this before. Starting with him even coming back to Baltimore reminds me of after Bruce Wayne uh, had his back broken, Batman did, went to some prison, as you so uh, intelligently pointed out, somehow made his way out in the middle of nowhere and got back to Gotham within like six hours. <laughs> like We don't know where he was. It, uh, he could have been in Canada. He could have been in Timbuktu, but he made it back like by the next day. So... And even, yeah, you know, whenever uh, a Batman is ailing, it seems like he always has one uh, last gasp left in him. So right now it feels like we're looking at the last gasp of Omar for a lot of reasons. For me, who won the episode, even though he is a complete embarrassment to the profession uh, just based off his behavior, but this is working out for Scott in unimaginable ways. He kind of won this episode. He's become the focal point. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hate to see horrible people rewarded with good things, but he's reaping all the benefits. Let's keep in mind, it was just a few episodes ago where he interviewed at the Washington Post and they were like, nah, son, you're not even on our level right now. Right. And he went through the humiliation of of that process, even though to some degree, as I explained, he kind of asked for it because there's nobody that would go in with his resume and honestly think they were about to be a report at the Washington Post. Well, somebody's entitled and not self-aware, which he definitely fits that. So that makes sense. But generally, I mean, look at how this has worked out. I mean, he's now a rising star at the paper. He's he's on the most important story in the city at this moment. He's gone Nancy Grace, you know, which that was a time where if you were in newspapers, it was a big deal to be on national news. You know, it was a huge deal. And for a reporter like him, who's just used to kind of toiling away in Baltimore to suddenly be put into the star journalism role. I mean, like the with the way this case is going, like how this would pan out is like he'd have his own show and a book deal as soon as this is over. So Scott is uh, a liar and plagiarizing and making shit up, but he is winning for the moment. So that's who I have who won the episode. 
first of all, with Scott, have you ever known anyone like Scott? I mean, you said you've known a Scott Templeton. Have you ever known anyone that was a little wonky with their stories? Oh, yeah, definitely. I I've known to. some people, and, and some have been caught, some haven't. All right. Um, and I don't know anybody other than the, the public cases that we've heard about, like a Jason Blair, who has been as egregious as Scott has. But I've definitely known reporters um, and columnists uh, who, have, who have been called out for lying and or uh, plagiarizing. And so in a, in a lot of cases, the, the details are just, the re- it's really dumb stuff, like stuff that's not worth potentially sacrificing your whole career, you know, over. Uh, th- the thing is, too, I mean, you want to talk about things that didn't age, you know, that age kind of poorly, is that lying in this business doesn't have the black mark that it used to. I mean, during this time where they, this is set, and even before that, certainly in the 90s, like a lie or even too many corrections really might kill your career. And it's just not the case anymore. So um, journalistic standards have not aged well. <laughs> mm. But yeah, I've known some people who have who have done that. I know, I mean, on the TV world, I know people who have definitely lied on air. Definitely. Interesting. Boys and girls, that is going to do it for us. Uh, thanks again for your support. And uh, we'll be back with episode seven um, as we count down this final episode or final season, excuse me, of The Wire. So as always, keep watching The Wire and keep listening to us. We'll see you next time. 